The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Good morning. Will you turn, please, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, in your chair Bible, it's page 956. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. It's something um, that I've thought about this. I've thought about before. Do you, do you ever think or wonder if the disciples um, knew that they were loved? I think we assume that the disciples knew that they were loved because they're very close to Jesus. And we know that Jesus is, is all about love. But given all of the sort of um, situations and circumstances that they found themselves in, in the middle of it, sort of in the thick of you know some of those rebukes in the thick of some of those um, instances, like the storms where they just felt like Jesus didn't care about them, all those sort of moments. Um, do you ever wonder if they ever doubted or questioned, not necessarily that um, Jesus was all he was cracked up to be, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was going to die. I mean, they had lots of confusion about some of those things. But do you ever wonder if they wondered if Jesus actually loved them? So I checked, actually, because I was curious about this. Um, I didn't want to make the assumption that, you know, this is just, you know, so obvious, um, you know, to them. Um, but I realized, and, and, you know, I could be wrong. You can check my work here. But I looked a couple of times, just all through the Gospels, looking for every instance of love. And Jesus never says to his followers in any of the four Gospels any variation of the phrase, I love you, until John chapter 13. Um, he talks a lot about love about, you know, the love of God. And he tells them they ought to love God. And he, you know, he speaks, uh, for instance, of God loving the world, but there's never a moment, a specific moment where he actually turns to these guys and says, Hey, Matthew, I love you, man. Which is something, I mean, maybe that's not a big deal to you, but you know, if I'd been spending three years with who I assume is the king of the universe, it'd be kind of nice, you know? (laughs) Maybe once, you know. Hey, Peter, I know I called you the devil. Uh, but I, I, you know I love you, right? Just, just, you know, every now and then. John chapter 13 is actually the first time he verbally references his love for his disciples. If you were to back up two chapters, you don't have to turn there. John chapter 11 is the first time that I discovered where it says Jesus loves someone. It's actually Martha and Lazarus. So not his, his closest disciples, but, but that family because Lazarus has died. And so you see that sort of thing taking place. But it's not until John chapter 13 that he expresses some um, verbal uh, um, you know, affirmation that he loves them. It actually occurs in verse um, 34. Love one another just as I have loved you. And I can imagine some of them going, oh, thank God. Okay, he loves us after all of this. Now, we do see also in this chapter the reference to John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so you could assume that there's some implicit connection there. But, I mean, just think about it. Like, if you're Thaddeus, right? Yeah, obviously he loves John. He spends a lot of time with John. And, yeah, he's always on Peter's case, but it's, you know, it's obvious because he loves him. He wouldn't be on it. But, but you know, he never really talks about me too much. And, and you know, I, I don't even appear in the Gospels but a couple times, you know. And who, who even knows about me? Right? So, like, if, you, if you're Thaddeus, right, or Nathaniel, maybe you wonder. And let's be honest. Like, most of us, spiritually speaking, 
even if we could be seen as a close follower of Jesus, we're really in kind of the Thaddeus Nathaniel categories, are we not? I mean, do you think that you're John? Well, that really wasn't a joke, but anyway. (laughs) Maybe you are, okay. I'll just speak for myself this morning. I wonder, I will confess before you, I have wondered, am I loved? And I've wondered, even though theologically, okay, I, I believe God loves me. I don't really doubt that he loves me, but sometimes I wonder like, if I've got some of that, you know, because he has to love me. He's, he's painted himself in a corner with this whole thing. There's no loophole. And so I, I have that kind of, he's got to love me sort of love. Do you ever lie awake at night under the weight of everything that's going on in your life or just the weight of the wounds that have accumulated throughout your life and think to yourself, is God mad at me? Like, is there some specific thing I'm being punished for? Does he, does he actually love me? Or does he just have to love me? I'm convinced, and having spoken to hundreds of Christians in my lifetime about this very subject, that there are some of you in this room, maybe quite a few of you in this room, who believe that God loves you, but you haven't really scratched the surface yet of seeing just how expansive that love is. Maybe it's because you've settled for a sweet little sentimental religious understanding of God's love, or maybe it's just that the pain in your life is so big, it begins to crowd out some of that comfort and some of that assurance. How loved are you? Let's begin reading John chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Um, Ask our Heavenly Father to bless our time together. Father in heaven, we um, gathering here this morning are so needy, even in ways that we don't understand or will even admit. And so we just open ourselves up before you. We've come to church looking for something, and I pray that you would wow us with the immensity of your grace in the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, his death and burial and resurrection. Nothing short of that. We want to boldly ask for the promiscuous grace of your gospel. I pray that every single soul in this room will leave here so full of love from you. And it's in your son's great name that we pray these things. 
Amen. Now, I've already mentioned that John chapter 13 is really the first instance of a verbal expression from Jesus that he loves someone. What's really fascinating um, is that this passage really kind of marks the turning point of the entire gospel. Um, John 13 verse 1 marks the introduction really to the rest of the gospel. It's like Jesus's focus has changed somewhat. Narratively, he's not as occupied with the public teaching and preaching ministry as he is now with sort of tending to his friends and preparing for his death. Verse 1, he knew that his hour had come to depart from the world. And so what colors this passage now is really the sense of urgency. The task has drawn near, and it's getting near and near. It's almost like it's um, rolling downhill towards the foot of Golgotha. And he's gathered with his closest followers here for this meal. If you're looking in the commentaries, you'll notice that there's a lot of debate and, and sort of um, contention about what this meal is and when this meal takes place. Um, you know, there's just a huge sort of um, variety of opinion on the chronology of this. You'll notice that um, a lot of the scholars are, are, are spilling lots of ink trying to figure out where it fits in the chronology of the Passion Week, how it fits in the chronology of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Is this the Passover meal? Is it a pre-Passover meal? I'm just going to leave that argument to the academics and focus on what is just actually happening, okay? I don't know when in the week this takes place, uh, how that relates to the other sort of chronologies of the Passion Week. I just want to look at what's actually happening. When it's happening is not as important to me as what is actually happening in this passage. The shadow of the cross is looming larger over these 13 men. And the time has come to drive home some eternally important points. And Jesus does this primarily, right? He doesn't pull up the lectern and roll up his sleeves and give a lecture. He gets down on his knees at the dirty feet of his disciples. Now, to get to the scandal of this, you have to understand that washing someone's feet, I mean, today it's, it's pretty gross to even do that. But back then, this is a completely dishonorable task. It's not just dirty or gross. This is something that distinguished people would never, ever, ever do. In fact, even some Jewish theologians at the time argued that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash feet. It should be reserved for Gentile slaves because it's so dirty a task. That even a Jewish slave would be too distinguished to do something like this. It is an act lower than low. And the only time someone would wash the feet of a peer, for instance, you're kind of on a you know, neutral playing field, you're just sort of peers or, or comrades, the only time, it's, it, it'd be extremely rare, the only time that one of those people would wash the other one's feet would be in a very rare act of special love. But D.A. Carson tells us there are no examples, zero examples in either Jewish or Greco-Roman sources of a superior washing the feet of an inferior, except for this one in John chapter 13. The God of the universe down on his hands and knees to do the job even Jewish slaves are too good for. Do you think you're loved? How loved do you think you are? I want to key in really on just verse 1. And I know you already see what phrase that I'm honing in on. We're going to consult the rest of the passage for context. But verse 1 is where we're going to get each of our message points from. How loved are you? Well, first of all, you are loved from the beginning. You are loved from the beginning. Having loved his own, having loved, it says. In the English verb tenses, this is a perfect progressive form, meaning it's a past action that's continuing into the present. 
But it tells us, first of all, that everything that Jesus has done has been done out of love. So if they've wondered from chapters 1 through 12, right? Not that they know they're in chapters, but you understand what I'm saying, right? In, in the ministry, if they've wondered, here is John chapter 13, verse 1 to say, he has loved you. If you didn't get it by all of his actions, if you didn't get it by all of the way he spoke to you, he has loved you. It's not like Jesus got to this meal and said, you know what, you guys? I do love you. I figured it out right now. I'm deciding right now to love you guys. No, he loved them from the very beginning. When did he love them? He loved them before time began. Think of the way he called them. Right? Do you, do, it's not like Jesus showed up and said, all right, I'm going to need some, some followers. Where's the local seminary? You know, where's the closest you know, theological training school? I, I, want, I just want the top students. Or he's checking the synagogues. Who you got? Who asked the most questions? Not the annoying kind, but you know the kind where it really shows that they're really you know. I, I'm looking for the cream of the crop. He doesn't do that. Where he? Where is he? He's he's out on the docks. He's looking for the guys that are a little like rough around the edges. He's looking for guys he knows are going to be three steps behind him every step of the way, and will misunderstand eighty percent of the stuff he says. What does that parable mean? Well, let me explain it to you. Yeah, I still don't get it. Yeah, I know. It's just, that's why I picked you. When did he start loving them? When did he start loving you? He was loving you before there was a you to love. I think one of the best practices that any Christian could take up is reading Romans chapter 8 on a regular basis. I, I think, this is just my personal opinion, there's no... Bible verse that says Romans chapter 8 is the best, but I think it's the best chapter in the entire Bible. It's at least in the top five. If you've got a top five and Romans chapter 8 isn't in there, we're fighting, okay? Let me just tell you this. If you find yourself often feeling a little lost, a little confused, a little hopeless, a little hurt, a little heavy, read Romans chapter 8. Again and again and again. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, we read something so fast. It just blows my mind. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say for what he foreknew. As if he looked through time, saw that you'd be a good apple out of that rotten bushel and picked you. No, it says, for those he foreknew, meaning he knew you before there was a you, and he predestined you to be like Jesus. Knowing everything, knowing everything about you, Christ loved you. You ever think about that? Knowing everything, Christ loved you. There's this weird little movie um, called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Anyone seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Very strange, is it not? I'm not necessarily recommending this movie at church on Sunday morning. Um, I mean, it's not rated R, I don't think. Is it rated R? We'll snip this out of the podcast. It's not rated R. Um, but here's why I like the movie, because there's this wonderful gospel illustration at the end. Not that they know it, right? I mean, they're suppressing the truth just like everybody else in the world, but God's truth will shine through in general revelation. And in this work of art, follows the story of this man and woman, Joel and Clementine, and Joel and Clementine meet each other, and they fall in love, and... You, you, you follow this romance, just all the wonderful moments, walking through the bookstore and walking through the snow and 
all the conversations and just how the romance blossoms. But as what happens in any kind of intense relationship, the romance blossoms, when the, then the romance begins to kind of wane, and then normal life sets in, and they begin to realize they're both just a couple of messed up people. And they have a lot of baggage, and they can't really get on the same page. And it gets worse and worse and worse, and so the... the, the the relationship is so frayed and so stressed that they go, this is where it's kind of weird, there's like a science fiction element to it. There's this process, there's this place you can go, this company that you can go, that will erase your memory. So painful is this relationship, they're each willing to go and sit down and have the memory of the other person completely erased from their mind. I don't even want to remember you, I don't even want to know that you exist, that's how painful this is. And so they go and they have this procedure taking place where they're they're zapped from each other's memory but something happens they meet each other again as if for the first time and what happens oh a little heartbeat and they're starting to, oh, so cute and they're walking and they're talking and they're falling in love all over again will somebody say whoa, whoa whoa they can't do this they've already done this once before it's going to screw up everything and somehow they get wind that they've been through this all before And they've actually been in a relationship before, and it didn't work out. And in the process of having their memory erased, part of it is actually going through all of the painful memories. These are the reasons I hate this person. And those are all recorded on tapes. And one of the final, this is why you don't need to see the movie, because I'm telling you right now, the entire synopsis, the entire, entire plot. They listen to these tapes of what angers them and frustrates them about the other person. And having heard all of those things, they still decide that the love is worth engaging in. Wait a minute. I didn't even want to know you existed before. But you know what? I'm going to give it another go. Well, that's just a silly movie. But you know that there's a biblical precedent for this kind of practice. Think of the prophet Hosea and what God commanded him to do. The Lord commands Hosea to marry a prostitute. Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity. Why would God command Hosea to do such a thing? Well, he's creating through the prophet a real world illustration of his own commitment to Israel. And if you keep reading in Hosea, you see God is rebuking the spiritual adultery of his people. They've gone after other gods. They make repeated commitments to disobedience. They shake their fist at the God who has redeemed them. They don't commit wholeheartedly to the one true God, Yahweh. God has covenanted with them, but they are every single day, in effect, cheating on him. And this, in turn, is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. He declares us righteous, spotless, clothed in his perfection. But in doing so, this is an immense outpouring of grace because every day you and I decide in some ways little and in some ways big to cheat on Jesus with some other thing we think will satisfy us or or give us peace. Every day we drift into decisions of the flesh and fail to give him all that he's due. And yet he never leaves. He has committed himself from the very beginning to a people he knows will cheat on him. Would you do that? I'm not even saying you should do that. Would any one of us standing at the altar with our spouse-to-be and being able to see right into the future and know in five years this husband, this wife is going to have an affair? In four years, they're going to give up and stop paying me any attention. In six years, this man is going to become engaged in pornography and turn cold to me for a very long time. In 10 years, your wife is going to cheat on you with your best friend. Would you still say I do if you knew that? 
Nobody goes and gets married thinking it's not going to work out. You're not thinking that the worst is going to happen. That's why you get married. We think those things will never happen until they do. Which is why cheerfully in the moment we say, I do. I will. But Jesus sees everything. He stands at the altar with us. He sees right through our veil, right through our fig leaves. He sees it all. Every doubt, every mistake, every sin, every choice made over a lifetime in which we say, you don't satisfy me, God. This is what will satisfy me in this moment. And ask, do you, Jesus, take this sinner to be yours? He says, I do. John 13, verse 1, having loved. This is the commitment Christ makes from the very beginning, that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, that there's nothing you can do to get rid of him. Having loved you, he's going to keep loving you. The kind of love Christ has for his bride is the kind of love that has seen it all and isn't going anywhere. You are loved from the beginning. But secondly, you are loved right now. Like right now, where you're sitting. I don't feel loved. You're loved. I promise. This is what he says. Having loved those who were in the world. Do you know that Jesus isn't waiting on some better version of you to emerge? At least, you know, contingent on his love for you. Like he's not, well, you know, I'll give you a 60% love. When you, when you grow a little more, then I'll, I'll give you the rest. The good news is that Jesus loves the real you. Not the you that you pretend to be. Not the you that you want everybody to think that you are. He's, he's not fooled by that anyway. Whoever you are, whatever you're doing, wherever you found yourself or chosen to go, nothing can separate you from his love. He loved his own who were in the world. What does this mean? This means that right in the thick of their confusion and their doubts and their sins, Jesus was loving them. He wasn't holding out on them. Think as he's sitting around the table, he knows Judas is going to betray him. He also knows Peter is going to deny him. He also knows that these guys are going to be so shell-shocked, even though I've been telegraphing this thing all along, I'm going to the cross to die. And in their minds, they think this has got to be some kind of metaphor. And he's sitting there not thinking, these idiots. Well, maybe he is thinking these idiots, but he's not thinking, I, I, I can't stand these guys. He's thinking, man, I love these guys. They don't even know how much I love them. I love these guys. The love of Christ is not a probationary love. He's not presenting you with some kind of contract. Like, okay, if you'll just clean up areas X, Y, and Z in your life, then you can have some of my love. No, he gives himself fully and freely to the real you. The real you, the you inside that you hide. That's the you that God loves. He doesn't love your sin, of course, that's not what I'm saying, but he loves your true self without pretense, without facade, without image management, without the religious makeup, you the sinner, you the idolater, you the worshiper of false gods, that's the you that Jesus loves. Otherwise, the cross makes no sense. The cross of Christ makes zero sense if that's not true. This is the whole point of the Christian message. God loves sinners. A couple of Mormon missionaries walking around my neighborhood yesterday. Everyone they meet, they're saying, clean yourself up and you can have the love of God. It makes sense, actually. That's the way the world thinks. It's what Paul would call a plausible argument. 
Yeah, that makes sense. How could the Holy God love me if I don't clean myself up? And here's Jesus saying, I love you. I'll clean you up. You can't do it. The point of Christianity is that Jesus died for sinners. He didn't wait for us to get our acts together. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and verse 8. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Tim Keller says this, The gospel is we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And if this is true, by the way, we can finally be our true selves. Finally. I think this is what Martin Luther was getting at when he said sin boldly. You ever hear that? Uh, Martin Luther, he's telling people go around sinning. He's kind of squirrely. He is kind of squirrely, actually, uh, Martin Luther is. But what did he mean by sin boldly? Be a sinner and sin boldly. Well, that doesn't sound like what you should hear in a pulpit, but this is what I think he means by that. I don't think he means that sinning's okay. You've got to put in context everything else he's saying, and he's actually harder on sin than the rest of us, to be honest with you. But it is confusing. Is Luther saying to go on sinning? Because Paul says, look, you don't go on sinning after you get saved, right? You, You don't do that. May it never be that you would do that. What I think Luther means is this. Because the good news is true, we can finally admit that we're sinners. We can be bold enough to say, I am the worst sinner that I know. And here is where a warning then comes in. Because we're talking about all this God loves you stuff, right? And it's there for the taking if you want it. If you want the love of God, he's not going to hold it back from you. That's the whole point. But there's a warning here, and it comes in this way, understanding the true gospel. To say that Christ loves you right now just as you are is not to say that his love shouldn't or doesn't change you. It doesn't mean that he means for you to stay exactly as you are. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So you can't clean yourself up for Jesus, but knowing the love of Jesus has a cleansing effect. So to know this whole love, you must present your whole self and your whole sin to Jesus. Right? So here comes Jesus. He's, he's coming to wash Peter's feet. Look at verse 6. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I mean, you can put the emphasis. If there's bold print, put it on the you and them on the my. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. It sounds really humble, actually, doesn't it? Oh, you're the king. This is really dishonorable. You, you shouldn't do this, Jesus. But I, I, I want to argue there's a little bit of self-righteousness here. Because to submit to getting washed means acknowledging you aren't clean. And there's probably some people in this room who are completely unable to do that. You're still thinking of yourself as good enough. Look at Jesus replies to him in verse 8. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. In effect, if if I don't do the cleaning, you're not getting clean. And here's where Peter gets it right. Lord, then not just my feet. Wash my hands and my head too. See, the love of Jesus isn't something to dabble in. The atoning work of Christ isn't something you, you have just a little bit of. 
please never think of Christianity as something you can just get your feet wet in. One who has bathed, Jesus told in verse 10, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is, he's speaking of Judas here. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. What's chilling about this scene, to me anyway, is that Judas is sitting at the table, we presume, or reclining at the table. He's at this scene of love. In a way, he's participating in this moment of, of love, this expression of love. We, we can even assume that Jesus washes his feet. But Judas isn't washed. Not in the way that actually counts. Because he's committed to his own way. And he's only a hanger-on when it comes to the love of Jesus. He's interested in the benefits, but not the cost. Roger Fredrickson says, Judas has removed himself from the sphere of Christ's love by becoming the tool of the devil's hatred. This is how John puts it in Back in chapter 3, verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So here is Judas sitting at the table, getting his feet washed, and he's no closer to salvation than he was three years previous. I just want to ask, is that, is that you this morning? You just coming to church to get a little religion? To get a little bit of Jesus for your week? Are you willing to let Jesus wash your feet, right? Get a little theology here and there, read a couple of books, go to church, listen to some podcasts, sing some songs, play along with the religious thing for a little while, but not really put your whole body into it? Are you refusing to give Jesus your whole self? If you want his love, you can have it. There's no halfway about it. He wants all of you. I think many condemned people suffer from a little gospel. And you can have a little faith. Jesus said so. You have a mustard seed side of faith. But you can't be saved by a little gospel. A halfway gospel, a just get your feet wet gospel. So don't be like Judas. Don't just get your feet wet in God's grace. Jump all the way in. And to those who are willing to offer your broken self to Jesus... You will find his love waiting for you right now, this very moment. No delays, no hesitations, no reluctance. You don't even have to walk the aisle. You can sit right there in this moment and think and pray to yourself, Jesus, I want to know your love. I want your love. And you can have it. Right now, right here, whatever your circumstances, whatever your background, whatever your fears, whatever your doubts, whatever your hurts, whatever your sins, his love is for those who are in the world, for those who right now are in the thick of it and don't see a way out. At the end of your rope is Jesus. And you can be in the sphere of his love right now. To those who are suffering, he is sanctifying. To those who are doubting, he is delivering. To those who are hurting, he is comforting. To those who are dying, he is holding. For those who are sinning, he is advocating. He will never let you go from his love. You who are in the midst of this painful, broken world, in a painful and broken life, he loves you. And while we are not perfect, his love is. And he will never stop. You are loved from the beginning. You are loved right now. And finally, you are loved forever. Forever. This is one of those things. The gospel is one of those things like, it couldn't get any better than this. Oh, yes, it could. 
It's the best that it'll ever be right now, and then it's going to get better. That's how weird and awesome the gospel is. He loved them. Oh, this, it just makes my heart want to jump out of my chest. He loved them to the end. John Knox's translation, he gave them the uttermost proof of his love. What's the most you could do for somebody to prove that you love them? Jesus did it and more. The immediate referent here, the, the end, right, the phrase the end, is, of course, to the cross. This is what John is referring to in verse 1, by the hour for him to depart from the world. He loved his own who were in the world so much, he was willing to go all the way to the end of the mission and die on the cross for their sins. If you think that your sins aren't that big a deal, just look at the bloody cross where Jesus was killed for them. And where you see the wrath of God poured out for sins, see at the same time the great, immeasurable, vast amount of love that God has poured out for sinners. The washing that Jesus is doing in this moment is, in fact, a picture of this. One commentator notes that even the phrase here translated in verse 4, he laid aside, right? He's taking uh, um, his coat off, he's, he's laying it aside, is the same translated elsewhere in the context of laying down his life. How loved are you? You're loved all the way to the cross. Four chapters later in what is called Jesus' high priestly prayer, slumped down in spiritual anguish in the garden, the cross is even closer now. He can practically feel the splinters on his back and he's sweating blood and he's thinking, who's he thinking of? He's thinking of you. Can you believe it? He's carrying your sin. He's buckling under the weight of your disobedience. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And then he prays for all believers. And I want to believe that in the space-time economy of the omnipresent, incarnate, Jesus Christ, right there in, in that human brain that somehow is omniscient at the same time, every name, every face, and the history of every believer who would ever live flashed through his mind. And in that garden, as he's preparing to take your sin to the cross, to finally do away with it forever, as far as God's judgment is concerned, he was praying over and over and over again, millions, billions of believers, including you who trust in him. Father, take care of David right now. David, who is to come, bless him. Take care of him. Comfort him. Father, bless Stephen and his family. Father, please be with Sam. Have Sam know that this is for him. Father, give comfort to Ed. Give comfort to Eddie. I am in them, Jesus says to the Father, and you are in me, so that, they may be, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And then Jesus took you to the cross with him. Did you know that? If you're a believer, you've been crucified with Christ. Paul Tripp says, Jesus didn't purchase savability. He took names to the cross. Did he take your name? I hope so. He loved you to the end of his life. Facing the moment. Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. At the crucial moment of decision where he could say, never mind. I, I'm, I'm pulling the ejector seat. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. They're not worth it. You mean all of that sin? Those people who aren't going to get immediately cleaned up? They're going to wait. They're going to keep sinning? 
he said, I will. I'll go. But you and I know he didn't, he, he, he didn't stay dead. But here's, so, here's something that's so wonderful about the resurrection. So death couldn't hold him. He rises again, not just spiritually, but bodily. He's, he's actually risen from the grave, tangible, but glorified. And while he is up, your sin is not. It's still in the grave. He comes out without your sin and with nothing but love. In fact, he says really remarkable things like, I'm going to throw it into the sea of forgetfulness. Like, I don't even know what that is, but it sounds incredible. Like, how does the omniscient God forget? I, I'm just going to believe him. Essentially what he's saying is, I'm just, I just choose not to hold it against you. I'm not going to remember it anymore. Because of Christ's resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, you are loved from the beginning all the way to the end for all eternity. Neither death nor life, this is from Romans chapter 8, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The expression that is translated here to the end, Tasker says, could very well be translated completely. Completely. He loves you completely. Your love from the beginning, you are loved now, and your love forever. Quoted Martin Luther earlier. I don't know how you feel about him. He's maybe my favorite of the old dead guys. And I'll tell you why. Because I see a lot of myself in Martin Luther. He was a, he was a really messed up guy. I don't know if you've read a biography on Martin Luther. but Neurotic. I mean, he got into the kingdom sort of like out of fear. Like he was afraid of a lightning storm. Like, help me. Don't kill me. Like, is that you? Is that how you got in? Just completely out of that? That's how I got in. One of those weird pre-tribulation movies. I was like, I'm going to get my head chopped off. I can't. That's not going to happen. Save me, Jesus, from the rapture. So weird. So, yeah, if, if, if there were pre-tribulation movies in, in Martin Luther's day, that's what would have done it, but instead it was a lightning storm. Neurotic. Here, 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 like the story. He's like throwing his, his toilet at the devil. And different, I mean, it's, it's just a weird guy. When he was Catholic and he was there in the monastery, they were tired because he, conf- he just, we never stopped confessing. He was so burdened by his sin, constantly confessing. They were tired. He was making up stuff to confess just to cover all his bases. That's Martin Luther. Anybody resonate with that even just a little bit? Fearful, anxious, wound up, really tight. And Martin Luther once said, if I could finally believe that God loved me, I would stand on my head for joy. What's underneath all that? He just wanted to believe God loved him. You been there? I have. My prayer in in preparing this has been that you'll walk out of here this morning on your heads. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, at this point, I just acknowledge what we always acknowledge, which is that we, we can't do anything. There's not... It's not the words of a sermon that change a heart. It's the words of the gospel. And so I pray that that has been the most resonant thing in all of this. The grass withers and sermons wither. uh, But your word lasts forever. And so I pray that that is what has found purchase in the hearts of the hearers here. 
that as your servant Augustine says, that the mouths of their heart would drink of your truth. That's what we ask for in the power of your spirit and in the name of your son. Amen.